I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. My name is Maris Kreisman, and it's a particular thrill today to be joined by Ruman Alam, who I, I would see at the coffee shop last year pretty regularly, um, and he'd be working furiously on his new novel, and, and now here it is. Uh, quick bio. Ruman is the author of Leave the World Behind, which is the new one, Rich and Pretty, and That Kind of Mother. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, Elle, New York Magazine, the Los Angeles Review of Books, the Wall Street Journal, and more, and he studied at Oberlin College and lives in Brooklyn, New York. Hi. I, do live in, I do live in Brooklyn, New York. That feels like such a like throwaway line in writers' bios now. <laughs> but it's also like uh, very relevant to the story you're trying to tell in your new novel. It is, and also underscores the fact that yes, in fact, I would run into you quite often at the <laughs> coffee shop near my children's school, where I would be sitting frowning at a huge pile of papers and. <laughs> Uh, you know, if I had any hair left on my head, I would be pulling it out. And now here we are in quite a different reality talking about the book itself, which is kind of a crazy kick in the pants, you know? It sure is. And I just feel like, for me personally, this fall feels like just impending doom coming at me from all sides. And you were writing about that last year. Your book is, it's so full of dread in a way that just speaks to the time now so well. How? Uh, I think that my, my answer to this is that while it's true, I share your sense that fall is it is a fall this year instead of the optimism of crisp weather is all about kind of an increasing sense of doom. You know, the election is coming up, California and most of the West Coast is burning. These are, I mean, I don't need to enumerate the ways in which these are remarkable times. I guess what I would say to you is that art is, there's always like a little bit of a delay with art, right? Like 
it emerges and then it clarifies something about the moment. And you realize that that moment has been unfolding for longer than you might have thought. And it's, it's unfair of me to elbow my way into this company, but I will. Um, there are two sure. books that came out earlier this year that I think of as really example, examples of that phenomenon. One is Jenny Offal's novel mm-hmm. Weather, which I think came out in April, and the other is Lydia Millett's book, mm-hmm. Children's Bible, which came out in June. Two extraordinary books, books I really, really enjoyed writing, and I read both with a sense of recognition, if it's not too grand to say that about my own work, um, just in, in the way that they were talking about the individual consciousness and how it responds to climate disaster in particular. Um, my book is thinking about many of those same subjects. So the fact that Jenny and Lydia and I were all thinking about <laughs> a similar suite of topics says to me that actually many, many people have been thinking about these things, right? And we've seen right. art on these subjects, you know, for, for decades now, but it's just, there's a particular inflection point right now. And um, there's a weird resonance between what happens in my book and the fact that we're all kind of locked up in our homes right now. Yes, yes. Tell me a little bit about the pacing of this novel. That like, I, it's one of the few novels that I like, when people say, oh, I could read it in an afternoon. Like, usually I don't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and yet I spent two afternoons and read it twice and um, it, it wasn't taxing at all. How do you write something so compelling um, that we'll talk about later uh, in terms of um, how scary it is? Um, well, thank you. That's very kind. Um, <clears throat> I don't know how I, how you do it. I mean, I read, maybe it's useful to sort of say what the book yeah, is, let's right? Do so the book is about a white family from Brooklyn, a sort of upper middle class white family from Brooklyn, mom, dad, two teenage kids, going out to, you know, what we understand as the Hamptons, but really it's kind of an unfashionable part of the Hamptons. It's sort of an unfashionable part of Long Island for a week-long summer vacation. They're close to the beach. They have a swimming pool. It's a really beautiful house that they've rented on Airbnb. And uh, so we, they get to, we, see, we meet them as they're driving out. We spend a, like 48 hours with them having this sort of idyllic beach vacation. And then the mm-hmm. second night that they're in the house, there's a knock at the door um, late at night and they're in this place where they don't know anybody. They're sort of isolated in the country and they can't fathom why somebody would be knocking on the door and they open the door and it's an older black couple, GH and Ruth. And, uh, they, this couple says that this is their house and they've rented it to them on Airbnb and they've come there because there's been some kind of emergency in New York city and they don't really know what's happening, but they've fled to this home in the country, uh, in search of, safety or sanctuary, despite having renters there. And then the book sort of proceeds with these six people under one roof, trying to figure out what's happening in the world around them. It does move like a thriller. The language of thriller is sort of the marketing language of the book, right? Um, I had to read some works that embody, you know, the conventions of the thriller, <clears throat> which yeah. is a form I, you know, it's a form I don't read a ton, right? It's a form that I certainly read when I was a younger reader, but it's not something I read a ton. So, and I mean, I think the books that I chose to look at are very telling, right? I read Ian Reed's um, 
I'm Thinking of Ending Things, which is a great book. I haven't seen the movie, but it is a really a great, great book, like a baffling and strange book that um, moves very quickly, that just draws you in and you can't stop reading it. I read Pet Cemetery by Stephen King, <laughs> also an extraordinary book, um, a really, truly disturbing book. Scary is the word that you usually ascribe to King, but it's scary in a way that is just hard to articulate. It's sort of scary in terms of the, the booze and the thrills that are like happening, but it's just, it's scary in this other way that's really unsettling. Mm -hmm. The way that certain well-paced narrative functions is to provide you with one answer and then provide you with one clue so that you keep turning the pages mm. in search of the next set of answers. Another book that actually works that well, that, that way, really, really beautifully is Never Let Me Go, Kazuo Shibori. Oh, sure. Book, which is a book that you understand there's a large question looming over the proceedings, mm -hmm. and you can't stop reading because you have to figure out what exactly is happening in the world being described. And when you do figure it out, it's so gutting. It's such an utter, it's like an, I mean, you're making the face that like, I, when I see this book lying on tables in bookshops, I make that exact same face. Like, oh, I can't possibly ever read that book again. It's too upsetting. It's so heartbreaking. And it was hard enough to just watch the movie. <laughs> I, 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 that's, the an, that's another movie I've never seen because I'm so scared. I, I just like, that movie, <coughs> excuse me, that book is brutal. And the idea of like getting back into that story, I just don't know if I have the fortitude for it. So I feel like I learned something about how a reader expects um, a thriller, I'm making air quotes in my mm -hmm. mind, uh, to work, which is that it keeps you moving. It tells you one answer, then asks you another question, and you can't, you, you want to hold the hand of the reader and take them with you. Um, the adjective I've been using, or sort of like the, the aspiration for the book was for it to be sticky, that you would get stuck inside of it and just as you're as you're describing just say like fuck it i'm gonna spend the rest of the afternoon reading this book because i have to understand yeah. the logic of it hi it's maris and i'm so happy to let you know that mindy kaling has a new essay collection called nothing like i imagined the best-selling actress author and comedian works overtime to describe with her typical charm and insight her latest life chapter balancing the demands of her evolving career with the demands of new motherhood. In these six hilarious short audio stories, she writes about how she juggles life as a new mom, an actress, and a Hollywood power bruncher. Written and narrated by Mindy, this is the perfect collection to listen to on the go. It's available in audio and ebook format. Prime members can listen and read it for free. And you can download it today at amazon.com slash mindystories. That's amazon.com slash Mindy Stories. And I, I spoke to our mutual friend, uh, Miriam, yesterday, Miriam Parker, uh -huh. and she told me to ask you, um, because she's interviewed you before in, in her professional capacity as your, the associate <laughs> as <my> publisher <laughs> um, of Echo. She wants me to, to ask you just point blank, what happened? What is going on in this novel? Like, there are so many different things we're trying to piece together, and you give us clues. And I, I've read the book, and I feel like it's a Rorschach test almost. Um, yeah, you oh, can, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, you can read your book, and whatever you think is the cause of this emergency is kind of what you're. Uh, 
what your psyche is most fixated on. Right, the thing that you're most concerned about personally. It's true that the book declines to answer what's (laughs) happened, right? Like something has happened in New York City and that is why these people have arrived at this house. And initially, the first thought in the book is that actually nothing is happening, that it's all a misunderstanding, that it's all, you know, all will be well with the world once we know more information. They still have their power, which is a big thing. Right. They still have electricity. They don't have any cell phone service. They don't have any internet service, but they do have electricity. And so they feel, well, whatever's happening can't really be so bad. Maybe there's been a power outage in New York City, but, you know, we can turn on the dishwasher here in the country. Mm -hmm. So what are we worried about? And then there are increasingly signs and suggestions that they begin to understand that maybe something is wrong and that maybe the thing that is wrong is easily explicable. Mm-hmm. But the book doesn't, but then the book kind of, the narrative sort of breaks and it, uh, there's an omniscient perspective that moves away from yes. the characters in the book that begins to just speak directly enough. to the reader. Just, just enough, I, I hope. Just like I a, hope. yeah, just a sentence here or there where, where then as a reader, you're like, holy shit. <laughs> right. The book begins to confide in the reader in a way that it cannot be frank with the characters, right? Because yes. the characters have to go through this particular um, agony, but the reader can't because the reader needs more information. And so the book does provide some information, but it never provides a clear picture. It never says, oh, this is what happened. And to me, that is the way in which the book, although it is obviously like a fictional trap and it's obviously like a stylized pretend universe, that to me is the most realistic thing about the book, which is that in reality, we don't possess all the information that's relevant to tell us what's happening. When we look at pictures of the Golden Gate Bridge with the hills of Marin and the distance on fire, there's no answer that says like, okay, well, this is how this will resolve. This is what it, this will look like six months from now. And that is the most discomforting thing about this book, I think, is that it has to capture the uncomfortable reality that we don't know the answer to the most pressing questions of our moment. And, and certainly no one a year ago when I was, when I saw you at the coffee shop, could imagine how this particular pandemic would shape our lives and what the unique problems would be. Um, And so that itself is unsettling. Like we don't know. (laughs) Yeah. And, And there are so many ways it can go and there can be so many shades of we don't know. And the pandemic is What I have found is that it provides a very useful and tangible thing to hold on to, to say at last my discomfort around police violence, Mm -hmm. around the increasing polarization of American and indeed global politics, around Mm -hmm. what feels like the end stages of capitalism or the end stages of the democratic experiment in the United States, at least coronavirus is this tangible thing that we can look at and say, well, this is definitely happening. Although I gather that there are people but, in this country yeah, who don't actually are, think it's happening, but you know, we're, we're going to put on our masks. We're going to stay inside. We're going to close the schools and the movie theaters and the sporting arenas. And we're going to actually change the way life functions in response to this bad thing that is happening. This podcast is brought to you by Catapult publishers of White Tears, Brown Scars, How White Feminism Betrays Women of Color by Ruby Hamad. 
called Powerful and Provocative by Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, author of How to Be an Anti-Racist. White Tears, Brown Scars is an explosive book of history and cultural criticism. The book is inspired by Hamad's Viral Guardian article, How White Women Use Strategic Tears to Silence Women of Color, and argues that white feminism has been a weapon of white supremacy and patriarchy deployed against women of color. By exploring the history of slavery, colonialism, and more recent subjects like the Hunger Games and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Hamad shows how the division between innocent white women and racialized women of color was created and why this divide and why this division is crucial to confront. Tragedies such as the murders of unarmed black citizens by police in our current political climate make Hamad's voice even more important and necessary for anyone wishing to better understand what's happening in the United States today. For readers of How to Be an Anti-Racist, So You Want to Talk About Race and White Fragility, White Tears, Brown Scars is, in the words of Cosmopolitan, exactly the kind of book that every ally needs to read right now. It's hard to look at any cultural product right now without thinking about coronavirus and what it has laid bare in this society about its inequity and its, you know, just it's in many ways it's failure. Yeah, I mean, even one of the primary conceits um, that G.H. and Ruth have, especially G.H., he he is a believer in money. Money is safety. Money will protect you. Money is the best defense. Anyone could make money. You just have to pay attention to the right things. Um, And certainly we've seen in in the pandemic, yeah, so many people in New York fled the city to go to their vacation homes. Like that's that's a trend. Um, And certainly it's more poor people who have, who have died. That's, yeah. that's a fact too. Yeah. Um, but it's scary to think that sometimes money can't save us. I think that's maybe, to me, that's one of the scarier parts of the book. Not, not the sense that money can't save us, but that actually none of our imposed structures can save mm-hmm. us, right? Mm-hmm. The things that we, the ways we've organized society along the lines of class, along the lines of caste, along the lines of gender, along the lines of race, are all meaningless when mm-hmm. you're talking about a society that's located on a planet in peril, right? So then mm-hmm. it's the planet itself that becomes the thing that we need to talk about and the thing that we have, and the, the thing that all of those structures have failed to address. And G.H.'s belief in capital, which is only almost religious, right? Like his belief in the stock market, the way he talks about the stock market is the way that people really, really religious people talk about like holy text, you know? And I think that that is the guiding principle of much of the politics, both of the right and of the left, right? I think that's just the idea. The idea is that, oh, there's a pandemic, we'll send everybody six hundred <laughs> whatever yes whatever. and then they'll be okay whatever. that that will take care of everything small businesses even the notion i mean obviously the federal government ought to have suspended rent and mortgages obviously there should have been like significant financial relief for families across the country for small businesses across the country but even that money wouldn't have changed mm-hmm the fundamental crisis, right? It's not about money. It's about something much bigger. It's about 
health and it's about the, the safety of a society which can't really be measured in dollars, even though we insist upon measuring it in dollars. And Ruman, you've, you are already known for being so good at skewering basically people like me, um, well, white like women. Too, but. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the first part of the book really is almost indulgent in mm -hmm. um, Amanda's Amanda and Clay's vision for what they want out of this vacation. They want a chance to imagine that perhaps they own this property that has level floors and central air because even though they are privileged as hell, that is something that you cannot get in Brooklyn, New York. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about Amanda going grocery shopping. <laughs> um, so the book begins with them driving out to the country. And I think that from the outset, you can feel that there's something a little off. That says there's something sort of not quite right. The very first word of the book is a qualifying well, right? Like, well, the sun was <laughs> shining. Like, it, the, it looks very optimistic and sunny, but you sense that there's a darkness happening. And I wanted the book to seduce the reader into thinking it was a domestic novel, maybe like a, a parody of a domestic novel, that mm -hmm. it sort of is about these people and their aspirations professionally and romantically and just intellectually and who they envision themselves being. And I will say, so, I mean, it's like untoward to repeat like other people's praise, but <laughs> no, do it. Uh, the writer Anna Wiener mm -hmm. said to me, the loveliest thing, I think anyone has yet said about the book, which is that the beginning of the book is an indictment. And I think that's such a generous way of thinking about the book. But yes, I think you ought, I hope yeah. that the reader who picks it up feels seen and a little bit skewered by the scene yes. where Amanda goes, she runs out, they arrive at the house and she runs out to go grocery shopping. And I spend a long time in the con, I mean, it's a short book, but there are like three pages or four pages devoted to Which is to a this, lot of real you know, estate. It's a, a lot of real book. estate, yeah, devoted to her grocery shopping. Because to me, it accomplishes this, the anthropology of explaining this person more efficiently to do it via her experience of capitalism, essentially, right? That she, in that moment of holiday, wants to see herself as the kind of person who's going to buy the expensive heirloom tomatoes that are wrapped in that really crinkly cellophane. And But she's, she's of course, going to buy Heinz ketchup because that's what everybody buys. But then she's going to buy the expensive smaller bottle of maple syrup that's $12 or that she's going to buy the organic fruit, even though the kids are going to eat it all in one day. And it's all a story that she's telling herself about who she is. And the reader gets to participate in that and see it and recognize themselves and say, well, I'm the kind of person who buys those if you care brand recycled paper coffee filters. And I see that and I see who I am in the larger structure of American society. And I get that you're poking fun at me, but also I don't think it's, it's not intended to be cruel. It's intended no. to be, you know, honest. I mean, I'm that person too. Yeah. We have those recycled, recycled paper coffee filters downstairs, you know, it's a way of establishing who we're talking about in the world that we are going to inhabit. And, you know, an, another primary thing about Amanda um, is that when she pictures the owners of her Airbnb, she does not picture G.H. and Ruth. Yeah, her imagination 
can only imagine or conjure white, richer people than they are. And she cannot fathom that it could be black people who are richer than they are who own this house. And that's a fun little game that I'm playing. I mean, again, I'm working with convention, right? Like the conventions of the thriller are short chapters and open-ended questions and a sense of momentum. One of, the, one of the great narrative conventions of like the ways in which American culture talks about race is, you know, the black person who appears and requires explanation, you know, mm-hmm. guess who's coming to dinner um, or get out, which sort of wonderfully reinvents that exact trope. Um, and you mentioned six degrees of separation in the book. Yes, six degrees of separation. Right. So this is like a, this is a convention. The Black people who turn up and demand to be explained inside of the narrative that's controlled by white people. And so that's some of what happens here. Although I don't think that's the principal interest of the book. I mean, race no. is, right. <coughs> excuse me, race is definitely an interest in the book, but I wouldn't want to oversell or overstate its importance because I think that the book shows race as weirdly a minor concern in the (laughs) larger set of global existential concerns. And when you're, when the shit hits the fan, say, uh, whoever is around you becomes a main character in your story. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And that's, um, yeah, that's a great way of putting it. And that's some of the language that appears at the very end of the book where, Ruth, the Black homeowner, describes herself as the protagonist of her own story. And it's impossible for Amanda, the white home, the white renter, to understand that she's sharing a script with some other person, that they're sort of co-stars in this drama. Yeah. And another thing that you capture so well in this book is, is the sheer horror of, of being a parent. And worrying about your children. This, again, is something that um, you often hear it attributed to Stephen King, and it could just be apocryphal, actually. I have no idea. But um, Stephen King is said to have said that his inspiration for his scarier flights of fancy is, as a parent, is imagining, you know, what could befall your child. And I mentioned Pet Cemetery before, and it mm-hmm. seems to me definitely a book that emerges from exactly that particular terror, right? Because that is the book about the death of, actually both of, both of the children die in that book. Um, and it's horrific and terrifying. You don't have to be a parent, I think, to understand that because no. there is an animal investment in like the next generation, right? There's a reason that like people who are parents and, and not, see little babies on the street and kind of like want to take bites of their thighs, yeah. right? Like it's, it's, our, it's our biological wiring and we ought to, we, the idea of the society is to like improve and hand it off to kids. But what happens in this book is so horrific, especially with respect to the children. And that is definitely me exercising, exorcising within right. my own, like, you know, as a parent, <laughs> my own most profound fears about what will happen to my children, not in terms of, you know, will they survive the day? That's right. what you parents always want, but what will happen right. to their future? What will their adulthood look like? What will, what, what is the planet that we leave behind us going to look like? And then there, there, 
there are the more mundane things too um, that you that you cover so well, like the addiction to our phones. Like that is, I have read, so, it, it, it made me realize how many books I've read lately that have text messages or emails as text. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And once that goes away, there is, you get lost. You don't know what time it is. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mentioned this in, in the book, but you, I, I, that great Apple commercial with Zoe Deschanel, which she mm -hmm. says like, hey, Siri, is it raining? You know, like <laughs> that the, the phone mitigates our ability to even look out of the window and determine whether it's raining. It's really incredible to me, but it's true and it's happening. It's happening to us. It's rewiring our brains. Phones have only existed for, at least I've only had a phone for 50% of my life. But if you imagine what it is doing to the generation of kids, the generation to which mm -hmm. my kids belong, right? That it's native to them and how that will rewire their biology, mm -hmm. you know, not just their habits, but their actual biology. It's an extraordinary thing to look at and think about. And of course you're seeing more novels, more fiction dealing with the form, right? The text message, the tweet, like it's an important aspect of contemporary culture. And yeah. I haven't, I'm not sure that I have yet read a novel that really nails it, that really gets it, or manages to incorporate into a larger whole, the way that like certain 19th century novels might fold uh, correspondence into right. a novelistic frame. I think Middlemarch does that, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that the, the contemporary writer is sort of like reaching for the right way of doing that. And my solution is a complete cheat, which is just <laughs> to remove it, to take it out of the equation and introduce that sense of discomfort. And um, and I think it, I, I think it works. I, when I read the book, because, you know, as you know, when you read a book, you have to read you read it. it uh, you read it. Like, like at gunpoint, you were like forced to read it and reread it and reread it. And there are moments when I'm reading it, and I'm like, oh, I want to look at my phone. Like, this is stressing me <laughs> out. And I want to just be reminded that my phone still works and still tethers me to society as a whole. And so I'm, I think that there's something to that. Uh, the other thing I've been saying is that there's a, re Clay, the father in the book, Mm -hmm. He's like a secret cigarette smoker. Yes. And part of the reason he is, is because that feeling of the craving for nicotine feels to me very similar to that feeling for the craving for your phone. Yeah, absolutely. When you're, when you're like at the, when you, I mean, it's in, inconceivable right now, but like you're at, you're off seeing the New York Philharmonic for two and a half hours and you get out and you're like, oh my God, I need to look at my phone. Mm -hmm. As though you're the secretary of state and you've got some <laughs> important business to do. Like I always do that. And then I look at my phone and it's like, oh, great, like an email from Bed Bath & Beyond, like just what I needed. You know, it's like, it's never anything that pressed me. You have the example in the book of Amanda waiting to get below 10,000 feet on an airplane. Yeah. And, and, and turning on her Wi-Fi because yeah. you have to know immediately. Yeah. I know, and I, I don't know what that is about us, but it's, 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 it's about the device. The device has trained us into that, I think. Let's also, only people, you know. Let's also blame the New York Times. Those push alerts <laughs> every single time, even though I've seen that most of it isn't em emergent news. But you never know, Maris, one day it's I know. Gonna be, and you're going to be like, well, thank God I found out the second it was important, the second it was happening. But it's very, it's changed our relationship to reality, I think. And, and that feeling, 
I think with social media and those push alerts, it's the same, like, maybe I'll be able to be in control of the situation better if yeah. I, if I have the information first. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Which is exactly what happens in this book, right? Like they feel that if they have, if they only have the right information, they will understand how to behave accordingly. But what do you do when the information is not forthcoming? What do you yeah. do if it's not going to arrive? What do you, and what do you do if the information does come and it's like, uh, it's not sufficient, which is exactly what, again, coronavirus, you know, it, the information was, you don't have to wear a mask. Right. And then the information was, actually, you should wear a mask. Oh, actually, we are closing schools. Actually, you mustn't leave the house. Actually, you mm -hmm. should leave the house. It's, you know, the information doesn't actually help us. No, it doesn't. <laughs> Excuse me. Bless you. Um, yeah, it's, and yet, if there is a change in policy about masks, I want to be the first person to yeah, know it so exactly. that I can enact it. Same. Now, I don't know, as, as a parent, do you feel the same way in, in terms of being able to have more control in your kids' lives? It's very difficult to like negotiate that because the responsible thing is to like do the reading and figure out what's right. But none, at this current moment, and this is the particular failure of the politics of the moment, the government doesn't possess any moral authority and isn't acting with any clarity and isn't actually telling us anything. And so you take, for example, the impending opening of New York City public schools where I have two students. Yeah. Um, it was delayed for two weeks for no real reason, as I'm right. able to understand. Um, we're still told that there will be some, ma some manner of in-person instruction I don't know, what can parents do but wait to be told? And when the teacher doesn't arrive, when the authority, when the mommy or daddy doesn't like <laughs> tell you what it is you're supposed to be doing, how do you then proceed? And what I think what we've seen play out in like the domestic politics is we've seen that money, that this is where money can provide you some leverage to opt right. out, right? To like move to your house in the country, to renovate your garage into a schoolroom, to pay $40,000 to a teacher who doesn't want to go into work in the public school systems, as none of them probably do want to, to come into your home and be the private tutor for your kids or the children of your friends. And, you know, I've heard so many of these conversations about pods and money and all of these things, and they're all tremendously dispiriting. I, I, I applaud the ingenuity of parents who are solving a problem that is yeah. right in front of them, but I cannot but lament the utter failure of the government of the richest mm -hmm. country on the planet mm -hmm. to take care of its most vulnerable citizens, which are those under the age of 18. Like it just is so baffling. It's such a weird moral failing. I hate ending on this note. <laughs> uh, oh, I know what I have to say. Um, at some point, uh, we hear that GH is perhaps a, looks a little bit like Denzel Washington. And so to, just, just for, for listeners who don't know, tell me about your Netflix deal. Um, so the writer-director Sam Esmail is making a feature based on Leave the World Behind for Netflix, 
which will star Julia Roberts as Amanda, the white homeowner and mother, and uh, Denzel Washington as G.H., who is the black homeowner. There's a there's a way in which Denzel Washington, as a figure in the culture, as like a, an, an icon of American celebrity, mm-hmm. has long been deployed as like a palatable black presence, right? He's an, mm. He is an extremely good looking man, uh, was very, very famous, was, uh, you know, in all of these sort of great American films, won two Academy Awards, although notably won one of them for playing a bad guy, like playing against yep. type and playing yeah. a bad guy. Um, he's always embodied a kind of like, there's there's something very noble and like real about his screen presence, that mm-hmm. he's this sort of like handsome, moral figure. When Amanda says to G.H. in the book that he resembles Denzel Washington, and then she begins to laugh very uncomfortably. She says it as a non sequitur at a moment of very heightened tension. What I, <clears throat> my hope is that the reader will recognize that particular impulse yes. to contextualize blackness in a way that is palatable to whiteness, right? It's a very particular and naked strategy that makes everyone in, on those pages very uncomfortable in the moment that she says it even though she means it sincerely as like a compliment, it just emerges as like an extremely weird thing to say, like the wrong thing to say. When I was told by my agent (laughs) at CAA that Denzel Washington was going to be attached to the, uh, the deal they were putting together. So, Michelle, who is my agent CA, and Julie, who is my literary agent, who you know, were both on the phone with me and they were both like freaking out. And <laughs> I, I was so weirded out. It was just like such a strange turn of events that the actual person who I had used as a cultural shorthand inside the novel would actually commit to working on the film adaptation of the book. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, Denzel Washington and Michelle, uh, excuse me, Denzel Washington and um, Julie Roberts, I don't know why I called her Michelle Roberts, are two of the most famous yeah. people in on the planet. American cinema, right? Like on the planet. So that is just a weird thing to get your head around generally. I was in all these, I was in all these conference calls, Maris, as we were trying to place the, the deal at different studios and so I was, you know, hearing all of these producers and all of these other executives having these conversations and they kept talking about Julia by her first name. <laughs> and at one point I said out loud, like so embarrassingly, I was like, I just want to be clear. <laughs> we're talking about Julia Roberts, the movie star. And they all laughed at me and I was like, no, no, no. It's extremely weird to me that we're talking about her as though she's just a person. Obviously I know she is just a person. Denzel Washington is just a person. They are artists. They just happen to be very well known. But like, it's very weird to find yourself in a conversation in which you could reasonably be talking about Julia or Denzel and mean Julia Roberts or Denzel Washington as though they are your chums or your colleagues <laughs> and not stars. Um, but the Netflix deal is a thrill. Sam is a writer of tremendous, tremendous mm-hmm. talent. He has a very, very particular worldview that is very evident in his body of work. Um, and he's also someone who, you know, he's kind of just getting started. Like he's got this, he's had this great television show. He made Homecoming, another great television show, but like 
you know, he's young enough that there's just like the sky is the limit for him. And the notion that he would want to take up my book is tremendously meaningful. And it was really reassuring <coughs> to know that you're handing your baby off to such capable hands. And I get to just sort of wait with the rest of the world's Netflix subscribers in like, <laughs> in, you know, on tenterhooks waiting for this film to emerge. I cannot wait to see it. 2020. At least one good thing happened. Yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, a lot of good things have happened to me this year, and that is sort of a difficult, it's difficult yeah. to square that with what's happening on the planet. And and in some ways, that is what the book dramatizes, mm-hmm. right? Like, people are still getting married. People are still yeah. having babies. People are still having moments of joy. People are still having professional successes or personal successes or just, like, a good day or making good art and feeling good and, like, feeling good about how, you know... And we are allowed to still have those things. And in in some ways, maybe it's more imperative than it was before even to have those things. To remind ourselves that like, that's the wind that sustains us, right? That's the thing that makes you keep going, that saves you from utter despair is like the moments of joy, the moments of satisfaction. And that's the note on which the book concludes, which is just like, well, who knows what's gonna happen? And maybe we'll make dinner and sit together, or maybe we'll like have lunch at the pool, or maybe we'll finish the jigsaw puzzle, or maybe the world is ending. Like it's just, it's very hard to answer all of those questions in life and in fiction. I think this is a good segue to ask you what you've been enjoying reading lately. Small pleasures oh, I think, in this. I, yeah, I think it's been such a good year. Um, I think so too. I know, <laughs> I know people have been saying that they have been having a hard time getting lost in books. And that really happily has not been my experience at all. Um, I'm teaching a lot this fall, so I had a lot of reading to do for teaching this summer. Um, And I'm reviewing a lot, so I had a lot of reading to do. But then I was on vacation, I was like, you know what, I have to pack some books that I'm just excited to read. Mm -hmm. And so I I had such great reading experiences with, um, oh my god oh <laughs> I had such great reading experiences with Brian Washington's Memorial oh, yeah um, it's his first novel and he is so good at writing about food and I, I always hesitate to say this about the book because I don't want to reduce it it's not a book about food at all but his facility with writing about the sensual pleasure of making and eating food is a good way of understanding his ability as a novelist to write about the human mind. It's such a beautiful book and such a strange book. It makes a, it makes a narrative out of something that it should not be able to do. And uh, I just thought it was such a beautiful book. I read that book in one day because I was it was on the beach and I was like, this experience of reading this book is such pure pleasure I can't stop and I won't stop because I'm on holiday um another book that I'm very excited to talk about a quite different work is um a novel called Homeland Elegies by Ayat Akhtar yeah which is a big fat very complex book that really muddies genre it really complicates how we talk about fiction, how we talk about memoir, and how we talk about autofiction. Mm-hmm. And it does it in this with such confidence, such confidence. Like mm-hmm. I just found it an exhilarating read. And I emailed him actually after I finished it and said, I just cannot believe, I did not know that it was possible 
to write a book like this. I genuinely did not know it was possible, and I especially did not know it was possible for a brown person, if you know what I mean by that. And he said to me very kindly, I know exactly what you mean by that. Um, and I get the sense that the book was a particular kind of experiment for him as well, that it was a, you know, he was trying to do something really different, and I really think he succeeded. It's such a sure beautiful did. book about what it is to be an immigrant in sort of a post-9-11 America. It's really timely and really transporting. Like, it's very politically engaged, but also very... Um, sort of poetically transforming. Yeah, like I just found myself lost in the world. It was a fictionalized world, but it was so. But it's also the real world. It's very complicated to talk about, but just an extraordinary book. I think it's going to be really one of the one of the. It deserves to be one of the more talked about books of 2020. I agree, and and the way I can explain it the best for listeners of this podcast, when I talked to him for the podcast, I I kept saying. Well, did you choose to do this, or or did the character of Ayad Akhtar <laughs> yeah. choose it's to? Very, yeah, yeah. And... It's extremely hard to parse how you're supposed to talk about it, and that is part of the success of it because it's so different an undertaking from Knausgaard's undertaking or even Rachel Cust's undertaking mm -hmm. because it's done. It's just it's done in a different register without any without betraying any self-consciousness about what it's doing. Even if the author felt that self-consciousness in the writing, it doesn't appear on the page. It simply appears as like a finished work. And it's really remarkable, really a remarkable book. And I will finish by saying, Leave the World Behind is also a really remarkable book. And I'm so excited for you. And I can't wait for everyone listening to read it. Thank you, Miras. It was Thank so great to talk mom. to you. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review, and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.